This all culminates on opening night of the importance of being honest. Are you fucking kidding me? No! Stop it! <laughs> Stop! Oh my god! <laughs> this can't, like, this sounds like a script. It sounds, like, it sounds like it sounds like a story. History, I'd like to follow me. And welcome back to Hilf, history I'd like to fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody. And I'm all stretched out with you here in the den. That's the Deluxe Edition Network. To find more great podcasts in the den, click the link in our show notes or go to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Getting Hilfed today is Oscar Wilde. He was a combination of Freddie Mercury and Mark Twain. A cultural rock star, a total weirdo, a literary legend, and gay. Super gay. Like, so gay, he went to jail for it. Now, you've probably heard of Wilde's novel, The Portrait of Dorian Gray. And if not, you may have seen one of his plays, like The Importance of Being Earnest. And if neither of those ring a bell, then you've definitely seen a shirt with one of his quotes on it. Like, I have nothing to declare but my genius. My guest is artist Clarion Gutierrez Owens. He is a painter, designer, and illustrator of an award-winning children's book. So pull up a chair with me and Clarion as we go hard on Oscar Wilde, who once famously said, there is only one thing in life worse than being talked about, and that is not being talked about. <laughs> Let's get started. You, Clarion are a stranger yes. technically to me. Yes. Even though we have sent each other cheeky texts and messages on social media. <laughs> but we have a mutual friend, Bo Hufford, yes. who was a, a previous guest episode on Prohibition. Yes, as well as Meryl Climo, too. Oh, my God, and Meryl yes. Climo. And they have a fantastic <laughs> podcast called Campfire Shit Show. Yes, they that do. you will love if you haven't already heard it. Get the hints and, and enjoy and, them. Yes, um, And Subscribe. Bo contacted me. And said, you got to check out my friend Clarion. He's so funny. He's so good. He'd be a great guest. <laughs> and then he did kind of put in parentheses, and he likes your podcast. A little bit. And when you came into my home today, Clarion, first of all, you brought me a present, which I love. Who doesn't love presents? And you held it out with two hands, and you told me so kindly and so earnestly that you love the podcast, <laughs> and you're a huge fan, and it was so fun. I can't tell you how good that makes me feel. Well, the importance of being earnest. <laughs> Oh, look at you. Look at Mr. bringing it all full circle. No, it, it, it was, it's definitely a great first time one night stand. <laughs> it is. It oh. is. It's like we hooked up. Now yeah. we're, uh, now we, we met got, at the bar. We met at the bar. Right? We've gotten all the way home. Yes, and now and we're about we to get, we're about to do the deed. You are from San Diego, but you are here via Las Vegas. You are a painter and a performer. You do them separately and sometimes at once. Can you tell me about yeah. that? So I guess, you know, I'm what they're coining now as a multi-hyphenate. Oh, <laughs> you know, dear. It's just, you know, yeah, I, I definitely have my hands in a bunch of different buckets. But yeah, I'm, prim I'm primarily an artist, uh, painting, illustrator. I start off as an illustrator, cartooning, uh, drawing, and doing caricatures, uh, character designs, and then got into painting. Uh, probably just like 11 or 12 years ago, I would say. Okay. Um, just doing portraits and what 
I do professionally uh, is perform as a live speed painter. It's so cool. It's so impressive. Thank you. Can yeah. you explain for someone who's never seen a, a live speed painter before what they're in for? So it, it's, a, it's a live stage show. I'm on stage. I've got a huge blank canvas in front of me. Pop on the music. I start throwing paint with my hands and brushes. I've got music going. I'm dancing. And I will do the entire thing. I'll paint a portrait in about seven or eight minutes. So, wow. yeah, you'll see it all happen from start to finish right before your eyes. You know, and it's usually of, you know, an, an icon, a rock star celebrity or a lot of wild animals, too. So, that's yeah. so cool. Yeah, and it's then, a lot of fun. And then does the the organization that's, like, hired you to perform, do mm -hmm. they take possession of the painting? Oh, Is absolutely. it theirs to keep? Absolutely. So I, uh, I do a lot of corporate parties, you know, yeah. and conferences. And so, you know, they'll probably keep it hanging up in their office. But I'll do a lot of fundraisers as well mm -hmm. uh, where they'll you know they'll take the painting and then auction it off cool. and raise a shit ton of money good so, yeah. cool cool yeah. do you do are you one of the ones that does the thing where you like bam boom and you turn it upside down yeah sometimes i yeah, love that yeah shit. i yeah, love so, that shit. <laughs> you, you never know what you're gonna get you are an illustrator of a children's book called a peacock among pigeons it yes. looks so cute. Can you tell me about that? Yes. So it is a children's book that I created with my dear friend, Tyler Curry McGrath. Uh, he is a journalist, uh, but originally based out of Texas. Now he's in uh, Minneapolis uh, with his, uh, raising his beautiful daughter with his husband. Um, and we met, gosh, like probably like 12 years ago. Uh, he you know, was writing articles for like The Advocate and Out Magazine. Um, and rather than uh, publish like stock photos with articles, like he reached out to me and asked if I would draw illustrations, you know, and kind of do like an editorial cartoon to partner with, you know, his articles. And then uh, probably a couple of years after doing that, he had an essay in mind that he wanted to publish that he called The Peacock Among Pigeons. That was a self-reflection story. And I remember reading it and both of us kind of agreed, okay, there's something... It's kind of at a halfway point. Like, it's not enough to publish, but it's too much for this or that. So, yeah. And then that's when he said, how do you feel about turning this into a, a children's book? And I looked back at him and was like, well, you know what? It's always been a bucket list of mine to create a children's book. Yeah. Let's do it. So figured the best way was to self-publish and then just raise the money to do that. So we started a Kickstarter mm. with a goal in mind. And we were able to be fully funded within 24 hours. Oh my gosh. It was amazing. I just remember seeing my emails and it was just flooded with like, yeah. this person donated, this person donated, this yeah. person donated. And oh my gosh. And so, yeah, so then it was very clear that people wanted this project. Uh, it is a story about a peacock named Peter who was born into a flock of pigeons. Mm. And so for his entire childhood, he was bullied for being different than everybody else because he was clearly more flamboyant, more colorful than all the other great pigeons. Mm -hmm. uh, and he always had tried to, you know, hide his feathers and try to act like everybody else, change his voice, walk like them, talk like them. Uh, but in the end, it just, it would not work. Mm. And, in, and he would get bullied for that. You know, so he came to a point where he decided that it was time for him to go off on his own, you know, and figure who he was out. And on that journey, he ended up meeting several different types of birds of so many colors and 
they all taught him that you know you are beautiful as you are and to love the feathers that you live in oh so it's it's a i cannot wait to read this story to beatrice you chose oscar wilde can you tell us why you know i'll be completely honest um I used to live in New York, like during, like right after college, you know, did the whole starving artist, New York bucket list thing. I want to do yes. it. And then now I am done. <laughs> you I know, and I want eat. to make money and eat. <laughs> I like buffets and good champagne. No, I love it though. I, I love New York City so much. It's still a second home to me. Start spreading the news. There was a, a gay bar there I'm called O.W. Bar. Mm-hmm. You know, it was Oscar Wilde Bar. And, you know, I think from then, you know, and just trying to figure out, okay, well, who is Oscar Wilde? You know, and why do they name a bar after him? Mm-hmm. You know, but clearly he's, you know, an icon of queer history. Um, the picture of Dorian Gray is one of my four favorite stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's still so, like, relevant mm-hmm. today. Like, I think that needs to be uh, rebooted in some form. Like, mm-hmm. the closest thing I could think of is, like, Gossip Girl in... You know, just, yeah. you know, kind you of. You know what I would do if I was redoing the portrait of Dorian Gray? What's that? Is I would make it an avatar. Just bring it up to the yeah. thing where you create an avatar and the avatar ages, oh my but gosh. you don't. Right? That is Somebody, you TM that garbage. Somebody steals. They take these things. Well, it was a joy to research this. And it's so funny to hear your background on it because it was similar to me going in. I was a theater major in college. Yeah. And so Oscar Wilde, it becomes a very central figure whenever you're, you begin earnestly exactly. uh, studying theater because his play, The Importance of Being Earnest, is a staple of the theater For all sure. around the world still, has been from the day it debuted. That being said, I didn't know much about his life beyond the writing of The Importance of Being Earnest and that he was jailed for being gay at some point. So having the excuse to to really go hard on Mr. Wilde was a privilege. And I want to say before we begin, thank you for setting me on this track no. of this remarkable man. No, thank you. Aww. I'm going to tell you about the sources first. So this is uh, a biography called The Invention of Oscar Wilde by author Nicholas Frankel. And I'm going to hand it over there to you, Claren. You can thank flip you. through. I do have my little markers in the pages. You're welcome to look through there. When you get to huge characters like Oscar Wilde, where there are scores of biographies, mm-hmm. and you and you find yourself when you're looking at sort of a field with a ton of literature like this, where you're like, well, which one do I read? Do I read the oldest biography? Do I read the most recent? Do I pick one from the middle? They and they all and because there's so many, and they don't want to say, here's another fucking biography of George Washington. You know, you got to pick your angle. What right. aspect of their life is right. your biography going to focus on? And this one, the invention of Oscar Wilde, as the title says, implies um, a premise that, as I finished the book, I'm not sure I agreed with, <laughs> which is that the the author sort of implies that Oscar Wilde invented himself. Okay. And that throughout the course of his life, his outlandish clothes, his outlandish way of moving, his all these things were sort of a very deliberate, conscious accumulation of affects that then presented this this man that was Oscar Wilde. The reason I say I, I just by the time I got to the end of the book, I was like, this book's kind of bullshit. Like it gave me a lot of great information, but I think the author's point is actually missed. Um, is that he was probably the most authentic historical character I've actually ever encountered. I, I, and as you know, I've researched so many. And, and so often you find exactly what this author is suggesting, the way in which they invented themselves, or if they were not complicit in it, the way that culture or, or other historians invented them, constructed them, manufactured an image that was contrary to reality. 
I think that Oscar Wilde was extravagant and he was flamboyant and he was uh, a huge character and that was exactly who he was. I, I kind of fell in love with Oscar. And, yeah. and I think that part of the reason why I fell in love with him is why I fall in love with most people, which is there's no bullshit. Exactly. You and know? it's easy to see a big costume and a big personality as bullshit. And it's hard when you're an actor and a stand-up comedian, you meet a lot of bullshit people who are just putting on a show. And when you talk right, to them outside right. of their performance style, you see how what the, the space between who they present themselves as and who they really are. There is no point in Oscar Wilde's story in which people are like, he was a fucking phony. Right. The second resource that I have for our Oscar Wilde fucking today is this book called De Profundis, yeah. which means it's Latin for from the depths. And it is the work that he composed while he was in prison. Yeah. This particular uh, book also includes some of his other like lesser known political writing about um, art critics and stuff like that. The real nerdy stuff, Clarion. <laughs> um, so... Incredible, right? To have his biography, his work, which I was familiar with before, this work that he wrote while in prison. Holy hot fuck this guy. We got a lot of good stuff to get to. Nice. So here's my plan for the fucking of Oscar Wilde. I'm going to uh, start with a... I'm going to try to give you a, a, a real good overlay of the 1880s because this guy, okay. part of the reason why Oscar Wilde is the deal he is is because he was a real part of his time and place, which is Victorian England. And this particular part of Victorian England and Victorian era in general is simultaneously at its peak. It is the most Victorian <laughs> that the Victorian era gets, <laughs> and it's almost fucking dead. It's like TikTok, you got about 20 years left before the whole world is going to change right. a lot. And this Victorian stuff is going to feel real old fashioned, real fast. And he's on the edge of that. You know, he's got his toes hanging over. He is, he's definitely a product of the Victorian age and absolutely the harbinger of what is coming. And, and like anything on an edge, you know, it slices him. This fucking is about to commence. Claren, are you ready? Wide open. No, no, no. Dive in. <laughs> His birth name is Oscar Finnegal O'Flattery Willis Wilde. <laughs> Oscar Finnegal O'Flattery Willis, Willis Wilde. I that was one of the first things I was like, oh my god, glory, what a name. I thought his name was well, was made up. Oscar Wilde, come on, it's too great of a name. Oh, Wilde, it has to be like Samuel Clemens made up Mark Twain. It has right, to be a made up name. Right. When the reality is that his name, as artful and beautiful as it is, is a pared down, down version. It's, he, he is, you know? If you think that isn't real. Exactly. Like, think about his whole name. Oh, my God, this that is, is so I, brilliant. Exactly. <laughs> like, I had to start with the fact that his name is Oscar <laughs> Finnegal of Flattery Willis Wild. Wild. And he, one of the first he things he did. He was born as a peacock. Come right on. from the get-go. <laughs> he leaves for Dublin College in the 1870s. And he is known right away for his fashion for the way he decorates his dorm room. His faculty and his classmates recognize right away his writing is spectacular. It, 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 what, when he writes, people laugh out loud. They can't help it. They, they find themselves closing their eyes and moving their bodies to the sound of his speech. And he is uh, nominated the first of his class in his first year. So wow. he is popular, he is academic, and he's also just, again, a little off. What people are loving about him is some of the things that make him just a little bit different. 
Scotland. Mm -hmm. He continues college and goes to Oxford in England, and he dabbles in Catholicism. Who doesn't? (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) A little bit. And what makes him stand out in Oxford is, again, his talent first, his skill. He's just a great fucking writer. You know, he could just somehow, he could just put words together in a way that like struck you and made you vibrate yeah. a little and, yeah. and had, you know, this, this feeling. And <laughs> he decorates his room with peacock feathers. No. A- apropos of our whole conversation. Are you a pe- serious? A literal peacock among wow. pigeons. And he wows his professors. He's knocking them dead. He actively changes his accent. So I will give that to the author of this book, The Invention of Oscar Wilde. He doesn't like being so Irish all the time. And he really tries to actively sound English more like his Oxford colleagues. And he, right. he, he does a, 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 and it works. Um, and he's not, do he doesn't lie about who he is, really. No. It's just an affect that people notice because it's a very deliberate thing. Well, I mean, it's like, you know, like a lot of Midwesterners, or so, and Southerners like tend to do that when they move into cosmopolitan cities. Like, yeah. you know, they don't want to be attributed to where they yeah. came from. They're there to be the person they want to be. And sometimes you can't help it. No, yeah. Like when I was living in New York, then I would say suddenly like, it would just come, come out. You know? sure. so like, <laughs> well, and I'm from Wisconsin. And I can often lose the Wisconsin accent. I don't necessarily try to. But where it will always land, like a big fat turd in the middle of the table is when I say the word Wisconsin. 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 If I really try, I can <laughs> Wisconsin. Like I have to really Wisconsin. <laughs> um, but one of the things that's happening with, uh, with Oscar Wilde here in Oxford is people are sort of just like, what is happening here? They know he's exceptional and they know he's weird. He dresses weird. He looks weird. He, he's got a clean shaven face and long hair mm-hmm. and he wears these weird clothes, but he's super good. And what they're doing is a little dance that I myself have found myself doing, especially here in LA, where you're trying to figure out if they are a total nerd or a future star. You just mm-hmm. like, they have a lot of confidence. Everybody seems to like them. I they're definitely that. good, but they're weird. They look weird. They're not conventionally. And I don't know. You know, it's like, I imagine it's how people were like when they first met Quentin Tarantino. Right. And you're like, really? This guy's the right. legendary. He, he never shuts the fuck up. And he's really, I don't get it. Right. Or seeing Freddie Mercury performing in like exactly. a, a parking lot concert where you'd be like, no, this is good. Like I see, but like his teeth and I don't, what is happening here? Right. And so he doesn't have anything yet. He's not a star yet. He hasn't written these works that you and I have already talked about. But the compulsion to be with him, the recognition of his talent, the thing is already there. But right, And his thing, the, the academic college elite thing that he's talking about in between classes and with friends at the coffee shop is his love of the subject of aestheticism. Which, aestheticism. And we know what an aesthetic is. What's your aesthetic? Oh, this is a very, you know, uh, Egyptian aesthetic or whatever. Aesthetic is the word for just art, the form, the style, right? And if you are into, at this time, aestheticism, you're just generally jiving on art, man. What's your vibe? What's your vibe? Exactly. exactly And also art for art's sake. (laughs) Like, fuck the money, fuck what the king wants, fuck what the church wants. Does it make you hard? Does it make you excited? Does it make your heart flip around? Does it make you feel good? Does it make people go, wow? Yes. Then it's worth it. Then you make it. Then you do it. Then you pursue it. And it's, 
it is an academic perspective, but it also is the true beating heart of Oscar Wilde, man. And I feel like if you can really accept that he is a devout aestheticist, then a lot of what comes after this will make like a, a lot, lot more sense. sense. Yeah, and people sure. are drawn to it in the same way, Clarion, we're drawn to it right now. He has the Victorian version of followers. And he is the Victorian version of an influencer before we really had either of those concepts as we understand them today. For sure. People, for example, are parodying him in plays and art at the time. So he's walking around London wearing daisies in his buttonholes and carrying a single lily. And all of a sudden, you start seeing art prints by huge dominant artists who are selling, and they have, you know, Paris on a day, and they have all these recognizable things, including this guy, who's obviously Oscar Wilde with his long hair holding a lily. He is Holy characters shit. that are, you know, carrying a green carnation and are particularly effeminate, and these kind of foppish characters are showing up in popular plays. And it's, it's awesome, man. It's sort of like... I mean, really, it's like being uh, lampooned on SNL. Absolutely. Where you're like, they were making fun of me on That's SNL? That's amazing. <laughs> like, like, I yeah. <laughs> exactly. You know? Like, you made it. Like, <laughs> yeah. And, like, uh, the Prince of Wales arrives in London and says, uh, I do not know Mr. Wilde, and to not know Mr. Wilde is not to be known. He's demand he, wants he says, I need someone to introduce me to this guy. Wow. And so what do you do when you are just, you have long hair and a clean shaven face, everybody wants to be you, but you don't actually have a brand yet that you're selling. I ask the Kardashians. Exactly. (laughs) So he got his ass to America. So you're 27 years old, you're Oscar Wilde, you're making your big debut in America, but you're going, of course, into America of 1881. So here's what here's what he's kind of expecting. Here's what he knows as he's done his research on what he's going into. Um, the big American celebrity men of the time. Like, if he's going to be speaking and he's going to be on stages and he's going to be sort of whining and dining, here are the people that he kind of expects to meet and to be compared to. Mark Twain, Wild Bill Hickok... And Buffalo Bill, so these huge, like, Western icons. And then uh, you've got, like, Booker T. Washington, who has, you know, the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. Mm -hmm. And so there's, like, intellectual men and political men and, you know, performers and storytellers. And, uh, And what they all have in common, though, is what America loves the most, which is strength and facial hair. Right? Yes. You can be funny. You can even be extravagant. You can be on a horse. You can whatever. You can be black, but you got to be strong and you've got to be masculine. And then we're going to fucking love you. Yeah. Okay. So Oscar Wilde is aware of this. (laughs) And he's, and he also, (laughs) one of the things I love too, he also does a little research on Charles Dickens, who had done an American tour. Which I didn't know about. I think that would I be a great short either. film. So Charles Dickens had, had kind of... So he was like, I'm kind of like uh, an English Dickens. And I'm going to come. And I don't know how they're going to say it. But he does... He's an, he's an aestheticist, right? So one of the things he's super thinking about is like... The first thing they're going to do when, when I arrive is see me. Photography is new. Yeah. They don't know how I move in space. They don't know what I'm like. They've heard I look something. So how am I going to look, girl? 
when I walk off this ship and America gets there first, I fill <laughs> of Oscar Wilde and he plans his outfits. And this is what he chooses for his debut coming into America. I want to show you a picture. Okay. okay. Oh my gosh, I can't wait. Okay, so listeners, they are knee-length britches, patent leather pumps. Oh. He on the next picture, he had made a massive. <laughs> he had a massive bottle green overcoat that was trimmed with otter fur, and then he had a matching seal skin hat. His hair is long and flowing, and that face is clean ass. Shaped he is. Rep- this is. He is prepared. Let me just tell you. The, he he came ready he to came. slay. He and slay. he is doing it. And this is absolutely something I would wear myself for my debut. And he knew that this was going to curl toast because even London, who knew him and had seen his style, saw him wear this coat and there was like an essay and like a lampooning and like a cartoon. So he already knew this might make waves somewhere. He gets off the boat in America. I want this coat. I know. He loved that coat. Actually, the coat, when he didn't have the coat, he talks about it in prison. He's like, oh, oh God, I missed that green yeah. coat. Oh, fucking grass. <laughs> so he gets off the boat. Journalists, of course, are swarming. We, we love, America loves strength and masculinity, but boy, we love a celebrity. You know, that we really so love That is so incredible that he has this notoriety already. And, it's re- and they can't wait for him to get off a boat. And when he gets off the boat, I mean, boy, it is immediate. He gets off in New York and the San Francisco Chronicle is there to Holy see him and write shit. for their readers about what he's doing, and they love it. And they write that his coat, this is one of my favorite quotes from the journalists who saw him on that first day. They said that his clothes were cut with, quote, a sublime disregard for the latest fashion. Which I like, oh, because they're recognizing it's mm, with sublime disregard for the latest fashion. We love it. If you, listener, have ever seen a photograph of Oscar Wilde, and it's probably, he's young, he's kind of cute, his hair is long and flowing, it was almost definitely a photograph taken while he was in the United States, specifically by a photographer named Napoleon Cerrone. Mm. So um, he, he was a great photographer, he knew he was coming and he took these and these photographs were not only so good that just like a good modern influencer man they stole the images there was some hat company in new york that started using oscar wilde's image to sell hats on these hat ads and they had to sue their ass oh my god so, i know like truly a modern story right now america as i've said could go either way he is famous and weird which we love and he's Weak and like effeminate, which right. we're just not sure what Are to we, do with. We we're supposed to like this. And America is won over by Oscar Wilde for the same reason I am. And anybody who spends yeah, any time too. with him is because he's an authentic, real dude. And he's not weak. He is very smart and he stands confidently, and he speaks with confidence, and this is what real strength is, right? Right. And that seems to, however it couldn't have been articulated, was filtering through. Here's my favorite example of how Oscar Wilde was true to himself and absolutely knocked our socks off. 
in this Trans American tour, by the way, he's in America for two years across the entire country. He stops in a mining town called Leadville, Colorado, yes. which has at the time the deepest mine in America. Mm -hmm. And again, just like influencers and celebrities are doing today, it's a win-win. Right? Your people get to know about Oscar Wilde, and right. people who know about me get to know about your stupid fucking mind. Exactly. <laughs> Everybody's going to win, right? <laughs> and he's got his coat and his clean-shaven face and his long hair and his beautiful way of moving. And he gets into a bucket, and he goes down to the bottom of this mine with miners, with the administrator of the mine, with the town mayor, and he has what he calls a banquet, he says, they served a banquet for me down there. Um, the first, <laughs> he says, the, the first course was whiskey. The second course was whiskey. And the third course was whiskey. Was whiskey. Exactly. And these miners were just like, fucking A, man, you're in. He didn't, he was brave. He was strong. He went to their literal level and he drank with them. Yeah. And the bottom line is you can't not like, frankly, and respect someone who gets who into your what? real yes. life and drinks with you. They Gosh. love it. They name a mine after him and they give him the gift of a silver drill. What? Which in hindsight, of course, is like the gayest thing. <laughs> right? <laughs> this sounds like an episode of Queer Eye. You know, just going to some like butt girl. crack town. Oh my you God. know, and <laughs> wait, no, it really is. Clarion, <laughs> buckle up. You are a prophet. Girl, he queer eyed America. So this is what he's doing. He's not just going into deep mines and showing everyone his coat. The way he's making money, the whole point of coming here was these lectures that he'd go on this oh lecture circuit God. and he would speak. Right. And, and just like I told you before, like kind of a little Mark Twainy, kind of a Huckabee. He's going to amuse, educate mm -hmm. and entertain you. And you're going to pay a small amount to do that. And his lectures were on aestheticism, how to decorate your home. Oh, my God. How to find your own style, how to. And he was really giving this service, he thought, to the United States because. We're post-Civil War. We are the melting pot. We have so many cultures. We have so many languages. We have so many religions that if we're, it can become just kind of a mishmash of style and culture. And so how do we, like, from this, find an American aesthetic? He fucking queer-eyed us. Oh, my God. Here, here are some quotes from some of his lectures. He's say, saying to this American Victorian right crowd, if you wish for art... You must revolt against the luxury of riches and the tyranny of materialism. For you may lay up treasures by your railways or open your ports to the gallery of the world, but you will find the independence of art is the perfect expression of freedom. <laughs> oh. Right? And he had a lecture called The House Beautiful talking about ways that you can decorate your home. And he says that he, he says, I do not address those millionaires who can pillage Europe of their pleasure, but those of moderate means who can, if they will have designs of worth and beauty before them always. And at little cost. That is my, right. Oh my gosh. That is my mentality. Like when yes. it comes to design, you know, it's yes. like, yes. And you, you can, can tell it's easy to decorate and design, you know, to decorate when, you know, you have no budget you know, or your right. endless budget. Right. You know, but let's see what you can do with, you know, your actual 
mind and your heart and you know with a limited amount of money what can you come up with totally it, it gives us a new word to define ourselves like when i feel sort of limited between like are you a socialist or a capitalist or and i'm just like i'm i'm an aesthetist girl that, <laughs> like, that's me i'm that just is like does it move the you the most underrated word i'm a pure you know, aesthetist i'm i'm, I'm using aesthetist. yeah I'm that's claiming me. it too good you I'm and me we'll get t-shirts made. yes <laughs> So America has now had him for a couple of years, and we dig it. He's welcome. We like his style. We like his weird stuff. Um, we know he's not exactly the man's man American right. guy that we have, but we don't dislike what he's doing. Um, but we don't get it also, and we don't love it. Women love it. A lot of the people who are going to these lectures are mostly women, and they're mostly bringing their guy, and a lot of the higher up, most powerful men are not giving him much attention. And I'm going to read you a series of quotes that I think really epitomize what we weren't quite getting. Okay. Quote, he lacks the manifestations of manliness. Quote, he wears no beard, period. No mustaches, period. Ironic. Quote, and his lips are as full and bright colored as a girl's. His face has a womanly air. His overall features are almost effeminate. In an apparent lack of vigor and force, he has soft, effeminate flesh. He has a graceful form, an effeminate face. These are all quotes coming out of the... They just... What did... They're usually followed by the word but. Or we're not quite sure what to say. And I feel like the overall feeling was like, we like him, but we don't like that. Whatever years that later. is. So yeah. after his two years, it's fine. He had some fun. Drank some whiskey, saw some mines, made some fans, <laughs> but he didn't obviously blow up. Right. And he has to go back to Europe. And it's 1883, and he's 30. And he's decided now, okay, I want to write a play. I think that plays are my thing. I think playwright is what I really am. And he gets in what I like to call like his fuckboy summer because <laughs> he like, you know, fuck America. And he gets to Paris where like he's hanging out with Victor Hugo, the guy who wrote <sighs> Les Mis. He's hanging out One with Sarah Bernhardt, right? He's hanging out with Sarah Bernhardt, like the hottest actress ever. And yeah, fuckboy summer big time. And he's writing his play Vera. And, he, and who knows what he's actually thinking about. Maybe he's like, maybe I can be gay and live in Paris and like write plays with these amazing, sexy people. But he doesn't have that much money. Yeah. And he has a mom who's aging and needs him financially. And she's begging him to get married. Please, God, come back home <laughs> and get married. Right? And so he leaves Paris. You know, I'm a 30-year-old dude. I don't really have anything to show for it yet. The play that he wrote, Vera, bomb. Doesn't yeah. really do anything. He'd already been courting this gal, Constance. Like, okay. the seed was planted that maybe someday we'll get married. We'd make a great, a great match. When it's time to settle down, it'll be you, girl. Like, he had already kind of seeded <laughs> that garden before he went to America. But now he's like, yeah, okay, I'll come back. Oh, and not the first girl he crushed on. Get this. The first girl that Oscar Wilde crushed on and wanted to marry is a gal named Florence Balcombe, who turned him down and ended up marrying Bram Stoker. Shut uh, Dra Dracula. Dracula. Yeah. <laughs> right? How is this all happening at the same time? Like, this is so crazy. So, so Oscar marries Constance. And Constance, let's hear it for Constance. Can we snap up I for Constance? I told you. Because Constance Floyd, none of this is her fault. Who wouldn't, not knowing about sexuality and queerness and all of that, Oscar Wilde's a great cat. She's so fun, <laughs> you know? Oh. And he, and they're friends. And they, and she's awesome. And they're good, a good match. He designs of her course. wedding dress and the bridesmaids' <laughs> wedding dresses. 
<laughs> they pump out two sons really fast. And they write a children's book together. And everything is really beautiful and harmonious at home. Their house is gorgeous, of course. And everything's going great. Until. <laughs> of course, it all falls apart. This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Wherever there are rules, there is someone going astray. Sex, sleaze, and shady power moves, it's a story as old as time. I'm Kiki Anderson. As a comedian and former journalist, not a lot surprises me anymore. But as we stumble through a doomed world and a digital hellscape, it can drive you crazy trying to make sense of what is and isn't kosher. On Indecent, I'm peeling at the wallpaper of polite society to understand the why and the who behind our taboos. Come along for the ride as I explore everything from porn to politics, tech, and religion. If you can't get through the day without, you know, rubbing one out in the bathroom stall at the office, you got a problem. There's a big community around people trying to trade tips and like tricks on, on how to suck your own and like just many different pages of threads about this. And then people kind of create like friendships through this. Subscribe, rate, and review Indecent with Kiki Anderson on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Also go to ncpodcast.com slash indecent to learn more. Indecent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. Oh, I can't wait to get back into bed with Oscar. But first, let's raise a glass to my latest Patreon patrons, Joey H. and Buddy S. Their above-average sex appeal and generosity help me keep the history coming. I am a one-gal band of research, recording, editing, and promoting, and without them, I'd have to steal my books and water down my whiskey. <sighs> Can you even? <laughs> if you want in, go to patreon.com slash hilfpodcast and thanks in advance. Other ways to support us? Send a message. Share an episode with a pal. Leave us a review and... Follow me, follow me, follow me, follow. We're enjoying, by the way, several fingers of whiskey. Yes. <laughs> we have all of our fingers in this. Three, maybe four. Three, maybe four. Who's Whatever counting? you can fit in. <laughs> maybe the whole fist. <laughs> Night day is young. <laughs> Where we left our friend Oscar, he is married, husband and father, and his wife has the money. She That was part of the bargain when okay. she married Oscar Wilde is that he has a lot of potential to make a lot of money. What yes. she brought to the marriage was security. So she's the one that had the money. She her family has the money. Okay. Yes, her dowry is significant. And you seal the deal with them dowry. kids and you've started yes. a family now, right? What's mine is yours, baby. There you go. Lock it in. At the same time, our, our guy Oscar has to get a job. Okay, and yes. just being awesome isn't really a job anymore, even though it wasn't barely a job now, and it was definitely not a job then. So he starts to try to find, he tries to get a job as like the inspector of schools, and he becomes the editor of Women's World Magazine, which in hindsight is kind of amusing. Um, <laughs> this is also when he begins sexual relationships with men. Oh. And he is having sex with uh, people he knows 
people in literary circles, people in some of the same professional circles. He is hiring prostitutes. He is having some relationships, but they are sort of an understanding that like we are, we are sexually and romantically and intellectually connected, but there was no real question that like, we're going to partner in any way. Most of the men, uh, all (laughs) actually, all of the men that Oscar Wilde engages with sexually, whether they be relationships or prostitutes, the men are significantly younger than he is. Sometimes even teenagers. Complicated. Um, and this kind of stuff, though, Clarion, this part is not that unique in the historical record. I was just going to say right now. Yeah, like, men of fame and wealth uh, have always had a private sexual life that was permitted. That has been true throughout history and throughout cultures. And then and it's con- concubines, prostitutes, side pieces, mistresses. This is always, you know, and gay and straight, frankly. Right. That's always, and it was understood that, you know, these, these sexual things were sort of tolerated. They were understood. They were kept, you know, discreet. What changed in the 1880s and what will significantly impact the story that we're about to tell for Oscar Wilde versus some of those stories that came, that came before that is a law, a very specific new law passed in England in 1885 called the Criminal Law Amendment Act. (laughs) Right? Boring! (laughs) Who wants to fuck acts and laws? Who cares? Here's the deal. What the Criminal Law Amendment Act did, like most stupid fucking laws, it was an amendment added last minute to legislation that had the purest of intentions. So what is happening at this particular time is that brothels and what they called at the time the white slave trade is getting crazy. The white slave trade was the term they used for basically the human trafficking. Women and children being sexually and domestically enslaved in ways that were against the law and against what they had already established in like Victorian law, right? So they were working carefully within parliament to try to develop a series of laws that would protect specifically women and children from sexual and domestic enslavement within the UK. Mm-hmm. And it was all going very well and it was all going to be passed and everything looked great until a politician, no really, named Henry Le Bouchier, Thank you very much. (laughs) Let's remember him that way. Uh, uh, Squeezes in an amendment that includes gross indecency between men. So he basically equates legally the sexual enslavement of a child with, quote unquote, gross indecency between men. Sodomy had already been illegal. So what this does is makes affection, intimacy, the implication that you're gay, gross indecency is really broad and interpretable and punished in the same way as the sexual enslavement of a child. This law is passed in 1885 and it is the same year he starts fucking dudes. Now it happened to correspond (laughs) you know i don't think one caused the other one necessarily i don't know if you want to call it luck but it does appear that in his life story old oscar starts fucking dudes at the exact same time it becomes a dangerous criminal act even more dangerous than it had been prior to 1885 this sounds like a movie like i know it's crazy right and here's the here's what's also crazy being a criminal and hiding from the law 
did wonderful things. That's Banksy. Exactly. For what Oscar Wilde was creating. Here, I'm just going to go through some of my favorite works of art that he is creating during this period of time with a little nod to how it has been interpreted that his sexuality and the illegality of his sexuality may have been behind it. His children's book that he wrote with his wife, which Um. I ordered and read to Beatrice, parts of it, it's called The Happy Prince and Others. These stories are dark as fuck, man. All oh. of these stories, they're like grim stories a little bit. I was going to say it's like current. Totally. Like one of the stories, like The Happy Prince, it's a sculpture of a prince and a swallow that like sits on the sculpture and they fall in love, but they can't be together. And then through like some kind of magic spell, the swallow is like, I'll become a sculpture too. Like, and you would give up flight to be with me? Yes. If I could be a part of you, it would be worth it. So the swallow like dies to become part of the sculpture and then they melt the sculpture down destroy them both and make a sculpture of the mayor instead. <laughs> like, Oh my God. <laughs> this is his children's book. That's his children's book. Yeah. It's crazy. Right. <gasps> then our favorite girl, the one we talked about earlier, here comes the portrait of Dorian Gray. Yes. This is written in 1890. That's five solid years after that criminal act was passed. He's about 36. It is his first and only novel. Most people know the portrait of Dorian Gray dude, young, handsome dude, and the portrait ages, not him. What's significant about the portrait of Dorian Gray, though, is that the person who paints the portrait is a man. Dorian Gray is a man. There's lots of homoeroticism Mm -hmm. between this painter and Dorian Gray. Dorian sees the portrait of himself and is immediately sad because he knows he's going to age and that portrait's always going to look gorgeous and he's not going to look gorgeous forever. Makes kind of a Faustian deal. How about Mm -hmm. the portrait ages and I don't? But what I didn't know until I started this research was that it isn't just aging. The ugliness of his acts show up on the portrait. Because the first thing he does is he's, in, he's got this girlfriend who's an actress. And he brings a bunch of his friends to go see her in a play. And because she sees him in the audience, she's kind of nervous about it. And she screws up her lines. She doesn't yeah, do a yeah. great job. And he breaks up with her. Just dumps her at the end of the show because she disappointed him. And when he goes and peeks at his portrait for the first time, he sees a sneer that he doesn't have. But like the cruelty, the sin that he committed yeah. is also showing up on the portrait. The portrait doesn't get doesn't just get old. It gets mean. Yeah. It, gets, it wears the signs of an ugly person, you know. Wow. Dorian Gray comes out. And the critics love it so much. They fucking hate it. Yeah. Because it is so gay. And here's the other thing. And it's like quietly gay. And we've had this fucking law for five years. We're starting to like know what you queers are doing. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the not said part is starting to be said. And we think we get it. Right? And yeah. why, is he, why, why do these men keep looking at each other and talking about their mouths <laughs> so much? So it's banned. It's published. It's popular. Then it's banned. Hello, 2023. Uh, our children's book is banned in Florida. Really? Yes, I see that as a writer passage. I think so too. What a tribute! <laughs> it's <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's on like uh, like there's a one there's like it's like three counties where oh, you've Jesus Christ. Christ. <laughs> I mean, can you think of a more modern story? So this thing gets banned, and then his publisher says, "Look, you know what they don't like about the book, so change it." So the second edition, and you need to write a plot. So here was the deal. You can publish this book and make the money that you need to make on this book. Because now people are even more interested in reading it, of course. You got to change a few things. And you have to write a prologue 
that lets people know you're not trying to fuck with anybody, that you're being it, right? Something. It was mm. so vague. And so Oscar Wilde, because we have artists don't mind boundaries. If you can continue to be artful within those boundaries, like, all right. So he changes a few things. He omits a few things. And in the prologue, though, he very thinly veiled, go fuck yourself right. if you don't like it. And he says, quote, there is no such thing as a moral book. Books are well-written or badly written. That is all. <laughs> right i know and it doesn't help him that this coincides with a big gay public sex scandal yeah. yes. so it's called the cleveland street scandal as the police discover that a group of messenger boys who are employed by the post office okay are also prostitutes at this high-end brothel that serves exclusively very rich, very ex elite, very well-connected men. <laughs> These rich guys are basically going down to this private club and are ordering messages and getting their post, their mail delivered to them and fucking these messenger boys wow. and exchanging this money. Wow. This, this scandal comes out and several things happen. One, of course, it ups the, the discussion of mm -hmm. these dangerous gays and these dangerous queers and what are they doing, but... In sort of a unique element of history, it also tethers homosexuality to intellectual rich elites. Hmm. And it was considered sort of like an aristocracy, like a, like that homosexuality was like gout. <laughs> oh my God. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? If you live, yeah. if you live too idly and you're too pampered and you're too rich and you never really have to work, you get these rich people diseases and you start like in sucking dicks. I know. And then, and I was like, side effects are great. <laughs> yeah. You start looking I fabulous. Be rich. <laughs> I know. I was like, all right. Spooky books. And Complicated rhymes are one thing. But what he does next is just make them laugh. I might get emotional. Be funny. If they're coming at you and it's scary and the world is burning and they want to fucking kill you and they want to kill all your friends and everything you do is wrong and you don't know how to get out, try to make them laugh. And everything he does from then on is comedy. Oh my God, oh my I really God. didn't think I would feel this way when I got to this point. And his plays. So this is when he starts writing those really funny plays, the, the popular ones. Um, the first one was Lady Windmere's Fan. Then A Lady of No Importance. Then An Ideal Husband. If you're theater nerds like me and Clarion, you know all these roles. Every theater experience. Oh my God. And these plays were way. And then the explosive hit of the importance of being earnest. It was the fourth society comedy that he wrote one year after another. Everyone was more popular than the one before it. And, and here's what it was, Clarion. They were the sitcoms of the day. Yeah. Right? They were a perfect portrait of what was happening on the street put on stage. So Friends, The Brady Bunch, <laughs> Modern Family, these, what, the reason I point to those three in particular is because they were holding up a mirror to the time they were in. The Brady Bunch is the 70s, right? But once yeah. we got into the 90s, we parodied the Brady Bunch because we knew that it was heightened 70s. Yeah. Friends, right? A lot of people wearing the Rachel, yeah. watching Rachel, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. That's what these plays were. 
the clothes, the costumes, now they're period pieces. When they were on stage, you could buy those furniture and put it in your home. All of the clothes and costumes that the actors were wearing were available for resale and available for people to buy and purchase and have tailored for them. The hats were all available and for sale because it was high fashion. But the activities, what was happening on stage in these plays was satire. So you are, so he was simultaneously holding up this mirror and showing the audience exactly who they were and shredding them and satirizing everything. For example, like in the, uh, uh, importance of being earnest, which for those of you who were never in the play and didn't see it, it's, it's automatically hilarious. The importance of being earnest, earnest, of course, is a, is a, is another word for honest, but it's also a man's name. And the whole point is that this guy, Jack falls in love with a girl who swears that she will only ever marry a man named Ernest. She simply couldn't imagine a life in which she couldn't marry a man named Ernest. It's just a wonderful name, Ernest. So he lies and tells her his name is Ernest. It's just brilliant. (laughs) And he and his friends come from the country and they lie about who they are and they lie about their names and they lie about how much money they have. But they're also lying to their family at home about where they are. And one of the characters at one point tells the other one how he is so good at getting away from his family or getting away from obligations in town to go out into the country and just enjoy himself in a way that he prefers. And he calls it bunburying. (laughs) And he says, what I do is I just, I tell my wife that I have a friend. I've invented a friend named Mr. Bunbury. And if he's sick, I must go bring him medicine. And if he's out, I must, Mr. Bunbury. And he calls it bunburying when he just leaves his family to go do what he wants. And people, of course, in hindsight, are like, that Oscar Wilde was fucking bunburying his whole life. And there's not a toothenly veiled analogy to bun. Burying. Burying. Oh, my God. Burying <laughs> one's self in the buns. <laughs> and as luck would have it, while he's writing The Importance of Being Earnest, while most of these plays are developing, but specifically the importance of being earnest, the the buns <laughs> into which he is burying himself are specifically the high-born buns of a guy named Lord Alfred Douglas. Mm, Lord Douglas. Oof. Lord Alfred Douglas is, as his name implies, a high-born, rich aristocrat who travels, of course, in the finest circles. I'm flipping to a picture. There's Lord Lord Douglas. Douglas. Oscar Wilde met Lord Alfred Douglas in 1891. Mm -hmm. Douglas is about 20. Oscar Wilde's about 37. He's been married for about seven years. He's got his two sons. And the way that we think that they made their introduction is that Lord Alfred Douglas was being blackmailed by someone who knew he was gay, had some correspondence, had some proof of a, of a homosexual relationship and was extorting him for a ransom. Mm. And he couldn't go to his father and his family to get the money and he didn't have the money. So he went to Oscar Wilde and was like, I'm basically, I'm a young student at Oxford. I'm a highborn kid. I'm being blackmailed for being gay. Can you help me? And Oscar Wilde paid the ransom and they fell in love. Now, Oscar, I say fell in love very specifically because Oscar Wilde fucked a lot of dudes and he fucked a lot of young dudes who needed him. But he loved Lord Alfred Douglas and Lord Alfred Douglas loved him too. In fact, it may be um, kind of an ill-fated love affair, but there's no doubt that there was love there. And they stick together and fight and go through 
a lot. Um, they're not out. Of course. But they're yeah. not exactly in. They are right. not exactly demonstrating the utmost delicacy in their relationship. Rumors are abounding. Constance got her two kids and is like, I don't know shit about fuck. She's not, it doesn't love it, but lots of women for centuries have had infidelity of all kinds of stripes and have just had to fucking suck it up. Like that's one of the oldest stories ever told. Lord Alfred's dad, on the other hand, gives all the shits about every fuck. (laughs) Okay. He's got, (laughs) he's got fucks to give. He's got an unlimited barrel of fucks and he is very, very deeply offended by this overt homosexual relationship that his son is publicly demonstrating with this guy. Right. There are so many reasons why the Marquess of Queensberry, Lord Douglas, the Marquess of Queensberry, which is a bullshit title anyway. He just basically meant he's an English guy. He's like in charge of Scotland. He's into boxing. He's got this ugly ass beard. He's a bastard too. By all my accounts, just a real bad dad. Mm. Just a dick. Why he doesn't like his son being gay though is separate uh-huh. of him being Scottish. But there's a lot. And why? Because it's a sin. Because he's embarrassed. Because it doesn't look good. Because it threatens their inheritance and their legacy. Who, there's lots of reasons for this. And he started, he told, he's confronted Alfred. He's already been very like, I don't like the stop the gay shit. Stop hanging out with all of these people that are being written about. You look gay. People are talking about it. And again, this Cleveland street scandal, like it's, it's real lines. People like lines are being drawn, right? He sends Alfred abroad. Oscar follows him, joins him for a few weeks. Oscar goes abroad to finish a play. And what do you know? Alfred shows up there too. He can't, Right? Fucking keep them apart. Then, this day, wait for this story. Oh, my God. Alfred and Oscar are in London together and go to this beautiful place for lunch, the Royal Cafe in London, to have lunch, as they often do. And Alfred's dad comes in. And he sits down with them. They invite him. Would you like to join us? And he sits down at their table and joins them for lunch and leaves. And they are sort of like... That's kind of amazing, right? Like that was, I think we might've just like won him over with like how nice we were to him and how cordial. And maybe he just needed to like see us together. And well, I'm sorry, what's that? (laughs) And Alfred gets a telegram delivered from dad that says essentially, I am disgusted. I cannot believe what I witnessed today. It is even worse than I could have possibly imagined. You are a disgrace to our family. uh, And you stop it right now or I'm cutting you off. And Alfred sends dad a telegram back that says, quote, what a funny little man you are. That's literally what he wrote. That's literally what he wrote. Oh. (laughs) Right? Now, you don't know Alfred Douglas. You don't even know Alfred Douglas's dad. You and I both know only what I've told you. And if any, if my daughter, if I told my daughter, if I said, Beatrice, go into your room right now and clean up a mess. And she said, what a funny little woman you are. I'd knock her into the next county. You know? I don't think I'd even respond to that. What a funny little, little, oh my God. You can imagine. 
Papa Bear goes through the fucking uh, room. Yeah. Okay. So Papa Bear writes back. And we have all these letters. I don't know. This is so like telegramming. So he writes back. I'm not fucking kidding. If I catch, quote, if I catch you again with that man, I will make a public scandal in a way you little dream of. They ignore, they ignore him. Oscar and Alfred don't. Just ignore them. Like, whatever. And they keep going okay. about their life. And they go to openings. And they go to things together. And people are continuing to write about them. And who fucking So they cares. are public. And it's like, it's... Yeah, but they're not, like, holding hands. But they're seen together. So people are like, those two are gay. You'd be like, fucking stop it. Don't be seen together. Stop the rumors. They just keep going out together. They keep sitting mm. together. They keep eating together. They keep going on long extended trips together. So they're not making out or anything. But right. it's all... Yeah. For these people, it's as bad, right? So in June... Papa Bear, the Marquess of Queensberry, shows up at Oscar's home with a friend, calmly, but specifically says, stop this, and implies a disturbing amount of detail about Oscar's life, where he's been, who he sees, generally implying we're watching you. Right. We know a lot more about you than you think we know. Fucking stop it. Stop seeing Alfred right now. He doesn't. And Alfred pokes dad and says, ever since you showed up at Oscar's house, we've gone more places. We've been seen in more public spheres and we will continue to be seen together. There is nothing you can do about it. And this got me, quote, if you try to assault me, I shall defend myself with a loaded revolver. Shit's getting serious, okay? Wow. This all culminates on opening night of the importance of being honest. Are you fucking kidding me? No! Stop it! <laughs> Stop! Oh my god. <laughs> this can't, like, this sounds like a script. It sounds, like, it? it sounds like it sounds like a story. Really. Like, <laughs> so here's what I want you to do. Pretend you got a top hat on and you got a fancy uh, jacket. Okay. <laughs> and you and me are standing. You've got like maybe a cane. And you and I are standing next to a curtain opening night of right. Right, the importance of being earnest. And guess what we see? A guy with a bad beard and a scotch. <laughs> bunch of tartan. And he's trying really hard to get in to this theater. And yeah. the police are keeping him out. The police and security are keeping out the Marquess of Queensbury, who is demanding during the performance to get on stage. He wants to get on oh stage. Oh my God. He's trying to break into the theater and get on that stage. What he is going to say, what he's going to do, he is threatening violence. So he just showed up and he's like, I want to... There was enough heads up. They kind of knew he might show up at the theater that night. Like a buzz that... At least enough that the police and the security were there anticipating that he might come. And when he came, he couldn't get in. And he right. tried physically to get in many times. And then they said that he stormed around the theater like an angry ape for three hours. And his oh. goal was, yeah, to get on the stage. Tell her, oh my God. The play is a huge hit. When the play is over and the audience comes out, they're like, oh my God, I'm hurting. Corsets were bursting open. <laughs> Corsets were bursting. It's so funny. And I mean, people can't believe what a, what a huge hit. And 
It takes a minute for word to get to Oscar Wilde that Alfred's dad had, in fact, been beating down the door and trying everything he could to get on stage and decry you through this whole thing. But he's not able to get in, but he does leave a note that says, quote, for Oscar Wilde, the posing sodomite. The posing, he's instantly spelled sodomite wrong. He spells it with an, a somdomite. So, I was going to say. But he hands write, hand, hand writes it on his own card. Yeah. That note is a very well laid trap because the bottom line is, the Marquess of Queensberry knew the steps that would follow him leaving this handwritten note, which were mm. the steps that Oscar Wilde indeed followed, which is phase one. He sues the Marquess of Queensberry for libel. This fucking guy keeps trying to break into my theater, tried to disrupt opening night. He's leaving handwritten, threatening messages. I'm going to sue him for libel, which essentially means he goes into the court. He says, hey, court of law. You know, this man is following me around and he's making accusations that are designed to ruin my family and ruin my life. At which point the court says, what are the, what is the response? At which point, of course, the Marquess of Queensbury brings his receipts. He says, first of all, I was only accusing him of posing as a sodomite. That's what the note says. So all I accused him of was appearing to be a homosexual right and here's all the evidence that he does appear to be a homosexual and he has had private detectives following oscar wilde around for a year so he has prostitutes he has hotel receipts he has eyewitnesses all coming forward in the court to expose oscar wilde's homosexual acts mm -hmm. and his homosexual relationships which quickly dissolves the libel case, okay? That's dismissed very quickly. And what becomes abundantly clear is that Oscar Wilde is about to be arrested for gross indecency for this new law. And when I say about to be arrested, I mean maybe before the, he leaves the courtroom. He does leave the courtroom in an awful hurry. And what most people assume is gonna happen next, he's gonna fuck off to France. Because that's what you right. do. You'll get be safe. France. Get the fuck of France. First of all, you can be a little gayer in France. You're out of England. We can't arrest you. It appears so much the obvious thing to do that they give him, seem to give him a little time. Like six o'clock that night, they roll in and he's home. He didn't go anywhere. Huh. And he is arrested. And when he's arrested, they ask him pretty quickly, why didn't you go to France? <laughs> like, <laughs> why you go to France? Oh, yeah. <laughs> And he says, I decided that it was nobler and more beautiful to stay. Mm, the artist. I did not want to be called a coward or a deserter. And I get goosebumps because he didn't have any problem with what they were about to call him, which is homosexual. Man who loves men. That didn't bother him. But if they call me a coward, I could never live with myself. One of them is true about me and one of them is not. <laughs> Swoon. Am I right? That is so poetic. So he's a, and this is another thing why I make this point now. I love comedy. You yeah. know that. Oh, yeah. I've, it's church for me. I, I think that what we laugh at is so sacred. And I think that we too often delegate comedians to less laudable positions because they make us laugh. We sometimes find what's funny 
to be a rung below importance, to be a rung below quote unquote real power, real influence. And here is an example of an individual known for his outlandishness, his queerness maybe, and his comedy, who has just demonstrated one of the boldest and most courageous acts I have read in the historical record. And we talk about him mm -hmm. going to jail, but we don't talk about the fact that he didn't have to go to jail. Exactly. You know what I mean? So the trial is great. He kills it, of course. <laughs> you know, he's witty, he's smart, he's brilliant, he's charismatic. He's so amazing, in fact, that the first trial is a hung jury. <laughs> they can't wow. actually convict him in the first trial because he's Oscar Wilde and he's amazing. However, he is guilty. Yeah. He's not guilty of doing anything wrong, but he's absolutely guilty the of the crime that they've accused him of. And he is found guilty and sentenced by the judge to the maximum allowed, which is two years of hard labor. And hard labor, my guy, this is, this is what the sentence included. Kept isolated in a single small cell, forbidden to communicate or associate with other prisoners. Hmm. He would be identified only by his cell number deprived of any reading or writing materials, um, a diet and living conditions calibrated to the minimum necessary to support life. So borderline wow. starvation by design. Hard labor means six hours a day climbing a prison tread wheel. It was the equivalent of um, 8,500 feet a day. So basically climbing the Sears Tower six times. Oh my God, his legs must have been amazing. <laughs> right? And when he wasn't doing that, he was turning a mechanical crank to like clear oakum, which is basically like pulling the fibers of like old rope apart. It has uh, been described as the most severe system of punishment in English history, which is saying a lot. For being gay. For being gay. Oh my God. For looking gay. For being. Look, oh no. For you know what I mean? For committing, for, for committing a potential. Yeah. They didn't this even, one is like they just didn't for even have gay. to convict him of an actual sex act, which they did, but they didn't need to for some of this. I mean, that was why the yeah. sentence was so maximum. He deteriorates really quickly. He doesn't have to do that for the whole two years. And it is in part because he would not have survived. He's moved then from the London Pentonville prison to another prison that he doesn't get any better there. He gets worse. He's in the infirmary a lot. He, he confesses he wants to kill himself. Man, no reading, no writing, no communicating with anyone. For this guy, for anybody, that sucks. Right. But for this guy, I mean, truly debilitating. Finally, November of 1895, he's moved to a slightly more secluded prison. It's, a, it's called Reading Prison in Berkshire, and he spends the last 18 months there. He is inmate C33. That is the only way he's referred to. He's in isolated confinement for a majority of the time, and the governor of that prison, a guy named Lieutenant Colonel Henry Isaacson, has it in for him and punishes him severely for even a, an apparent whisper of right. you know doing something against the system um but he does have friends too you know people who uh. love him people who care about him people from the outside that are trying to do something he's still an icon he's still famous you right. know what i mean so people and people had been working long before oscar wilde was sent to prison to fix this system 
Yeah. This is a this is an unjust, unfair, outdated prison system that needed to be reformed. So people who loved and knew Oscar Wilde, people who had never known him, were finding him a convenient vehicle to try to reform this prison system in general. And the one who finally changes things for him from the outside, for him on the inside, is a, a journalist uh, and an advocate, a guy named Frank Harris, who, by the way, was his friend who was like, do not sue the Marquess of Queensberry for libel. <laughs> he was like, from the beginning, like, that's a terrible <laughs> idea. So yeah, even no. now he's like, now you're in jail, dummy. And I'm going to try and like help you out. And he does. And he is able to sort of, uh, again, with some other kind of political and social contacts, turn the gears and they get a new prison official in there who's a lot nicer to Oscar Wilde, lets him have paper now and again. So this De Profundis which was what wow. he started to write from jail. He had originally written one page at a time because he was only given one page of paper a day. And once he wrote it, they took it. So oh. he was writing. He couldn't like go back, see what he wrote, edit things, or look, he'd write a page and send it off. When he finally got this new prison administrator, let him have more pages at once and let him write longer periods of time in his isolation. And you can see the change in his writing as you read it. It's That's crazy. Um, but he does his time. First part's worse than the last part, but all of it's fucking English prison in yeah. the end of the 19th century. <laughs> and he comes out broken. Of course. He's broken. He's sick. He's weak. He's darker. Um, his wife and his kids, they have took, on, took off. They changed their names to avoid the shame. His wife continues to send him money. He has a small mm. allowance, which is kind of benevolent yeah. <laughs> I think, of her. Um, he goes by a pseudonym of Sebastian Melmoth for uh, his post time. I know, very funny. Sebastian, which Melmoth. he gets, of course, from a saint, um, a martyred saint who is considered sort of the patron saint of homosexuals, mostly because the art that represents him is like super hot. And oh, his like yeah. arms are like, <laughs> arrows sticking out of his chest and stuff. Um, and Melmoth was this like gothic kind of Faustian character from an old, you know, of course Oscar oh Wilde's going to pick a crazy name, right? Um, but De Profundis gets published, as do some of his other work from prison, and he writes one called The Ballad of Raiding Gaul, which is like a poem from the Reading Jail. And he publishes it as inmate C-33, because that was how he was referred, cool. you know? Yeah. It was all he was called for the whole time he wrote it. And this work, the De Profundis and this Ballad of Raiding Gaul, was cited or quoted in Parliament at least five times when they were in the, the act of passing the 1898 Prisons Act, which vastly improved the life of prisoners from then on. Wow. Which means it wasn't just that Oscar Wilde was imprisoned. It was the work he did while he was in prison and then committed to paper when he got out. Changed everything that nuts i am so fucked right now and of course he finds alfred again oh my god not only do they hook up again they check into a hotel in france for a week under their own names stop it that is the ultimate like fuck, fuck you. you um constance first cuts him uh, off uh, constance like i think i was being awfully oh, nice, nice. No more. And then she dies. So he, <laughs> Fuck you. I know. Last but he, so he lives essentially on the little bit of money he gets from some of his published works and the generosity of his friends for only three more years after he gets out of jail. Mm. Um, 
he does, I love mentioning this. He's in Paris in his last year of life in 1900, which is the year of the Paris World's Fair. And I would have done anything to go to some of these world fairs. I mean, wow, right? Demonstrations of new technology and electricity and all these amazing things from around the world. You know, there's no internet. There's it's like, this is the only time you get to really see what's going on beyond the world. And he went several nights a week. And they said he skipped around like a child, that he was just sort of filled with this awe and love of life. Um, And it was ultimately meningitis, an ear infection, that he got in prison, that he had never really fully recovered from. It is a painful death. He has friends around him when he dies. And his last words were, I am engaged in a battle to the death with this wallpaper. Only one of us will make it. (laughs) At his funeral, Alfred Mm. shows up, throws himself on the casket, screaming, Oscar! Oscar! And he has to be forcibly removed from the funeral. Oh, my God. Mm Mm-hmm. I know. Whoa. <laughs> I know. That, my friend Clarion, was the hilfing of Oscar Wilde. Holy fuck. <laughs> oh my gosh, I, I have like 10 packs of cigarettes next to me right now. I know, right? It's, it's... just like that post-coital. <gasps> Thank you so much for bringing me this subject. It was such a joy. And for being here with no. me. I had so much fun. Oh my God, stop it. No, thank you. Thank you for this amazing mind-fucking-history-fucking experience of a lifetime. Oh, that is insane. Man. And can thank we all, you. Thank and you let's for... raise our glass before we go. Let's sure. raise our glass, you and me. Uh, this is a toast to Oscar Finnegal O'Flattery Willis Wild. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thanks again to Clarion. Find him and follow him and buy a copy of his children's book, A Peacock Among Pigeons. It is so cute. Beatrice loves it. And you can find a link to it and more in our show notes. Our next hilf is the Clinton Lewinsky sex scandal. I know, with podcast producer Kelly Blackheart. Ooh, what a fun, hot mess. The scandal, not Kelly. (laughs) She's lovely. (laughs) Oh, until we're back. Uh, Our theme song was composed and performed by Kat Perkins. A reminder that you can find my sources, links to the books, documentaries, and articles I reference in the summary of this episode or by emailing us hilfpodcast at gmail.com or messaging us on social media at hilfpodcast. If you'd like to become a patron of the pod, go to patreon.com slash hilfpodcast and see what we can do for each other. This has been Hilf. History I'd like to fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody, reminding you that history is a party. And everybody's coming. <laughs> What's up, everybody? I'm Matt, the host of the Beard Laws Podcast, a podcast that has nothing to do with beards. A podcast where we aim to entertain and interact with our live viewers, but our listeners, they're like the quiet person that never talks sitting around the bonfire because the rest of the group is so entertaining, hilarious, wild, and a little bit 
them. So grab a drink, grab a snack, and let Beard Laws and the boys, Toby, Brandon, Logan, Zach, Richie, and our occasional special guest entertain you. We're live on the Beard Laws YouTube Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and forever reason you want to see us and or our beards. Check us out, thebeardlawspodcast.com. We're everywhere.